Hey everyone, and welcome to DarkCast Interviews. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. DCI is a long-form interview podcast where we talk to game creators about new and upcoming video games, as well as who they are and what they do behind the scenes. For more information about the show, check out DarkStation.com. There you can find the original DarkCast, as well as game reviews, previews, and features. You can follow us on Twitter at DarkStation underscore com, and find us on Facebook, as well as email us at podcast at darkstation.com. Today, I'm talking with Jeff Spoonhauer from the studio Resonator about their first title, A New The Distant Light. For more information about the game, check out the links in the show notes to this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. Welcome everybody to DCI, I'm Jonathan Miley, and joining me today back for our first DarkCast interview in a long time is Mr. Jeff Spoonhauer. How are you doing, Jeff? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Absolutely. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, Now, you are one of the co-founders of Resonator, and you guys are working on your studio's first title, uh, a new The Distant Light. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Yep. Um, yep, working with my development partner, his name is uh, Steve Copeland, and this is our first uh, indie game. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, now, you guys were, were kick-started uh, a while back, and the the game is coming out. Uh, actually, when, when is the game coming out? We haven't actually announced a um, launch date yet. Uh, okay. we, we recently hit alpha, and we still have um, a bit of development left Um but we yeah we, we get asked that a lot and uh, okay. <laughs> I, I feel like one of those I feel like a like a corporate shill you know <laughs> like we, we don't we don't comment on rumors and speculation type thing <laughs> but uh, no no announcement yet on release date okay uh, for anybody that doesn't know um, when your game reaches alpha like what what does that mean where kind of is your game in development yeah that's a good question um, so. Essentially, for us, alpha means that we're feature complete. So all of the major systems in the game are built out. Some of them still may need polish and stuff, but like every, all of like the core systems and mechanics in the game are present. Um, and essentially what we have left to do from alpha leading up to beta and then to launch is like filling out the game world with content. You know, like making sure all the zones are complete, you got all the characters and enemies and boss battles and the story is implemented and all that stuff. So um, alpha is kind of like, it's just a thing that game developers sort of made up internally just as like a milestone <laughs> to, to make you feel like you're actually making progress. <laughs> I like it. You know what I mean? Uh, so that's essentially what, what alpha is. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Uh, now, before we get to talking about the game uh, proper, let's talk a little bit about who you are and kind of, uh, what your position is at at the studio? You said you're a uh, two man studio, so I imagine that means you wear many many hats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Resonator was co founded by myself and my dev partner Steve Copeland um, back in 2014, and we both came from pretty long careers in studio AAA studio development. Um, so I've, I'm firmly on the art side. I've done a lot of animation and cinematics and sound design. And Steve is uh, a programmer and a designer. So um, I think he started working around 2000, and I started working around 2002 in the industry. Uh, okay. Yeah, so sort of long stints at on big projects, big studios. Um, and then we were connected together by a mutual friend, colleague, and so essentially, yeah, to answer your question, we both probably do the jobs of 10 different people at, at our former <laughs> studios. Um, essentially, like I'm doing all the creative audio visual stuff on the, on the AV department. Um, and uh, Steve is doing all of the programming and is the game, essentially like the game director. So he's okay. sort of keeping an eye on the high level design of the game. And I'm doing all of the, a lot of the implementation of, of, the, of the stuff. 
Of the stuff. Yeah, of the you stuff. Implement the stuff. That's... Yeah. <laughs> um, and I do want to mention that we have a really great uh, freelance composer whose name is um, Will Roger. He's writing the music uh, for our game, and he um, he's really awesome. He just he's recently scored the um, Call of Duty World War II and worked on Destiny and okay. some Star Wars games and stuff. So it's essentially two and a half developers. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, we'll, we'll uh, the music is definitely something I want to talk about, and we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that you've you know, been in the industry for a while. You've worked on a number of games. What are some of the stuff that people might know your work from? Sure. Um, so I started fresh out of grad school in 2002. I worked as an animator on the NFL Street Games for EA. Ooh. So back in the day. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah. Those were my first games that I worked on were the first two NFL Streets. Um, and then I worked at Volition for quite a while, and I worked on um, in-house on the first Saints Row game and then as a contractor on the other three. Uh, yeah, and then worked at 2K for a long time, worked on the Bioshock games, on Borderlands 2, um, Mafia 2, quite a few games at 2K, and I've, I've also done a lot of full-time freelance, um, like cinematic work for uh, for Sony. So... A game, the first game I worked on with them a long time ago was called Siphon Filter Logan's Shadow for the PSP. Uh, I don't know if any of your listeners uh, may have played that. That's a really old one. Most recently I worked on um, uh, Uncharted Golden Abyss for those guys, the, the PS Vita. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah, so some pretty big studio projects um, leading up to this crazy indie thing. Awesome. Uh, yeah. You mentioned that you got your uh, graduate degree. What, what did you actually get your degree in i went to uh well my degree my M- i got an mfa in computer animation master of fine arts um and then went to uh rochester institute of technology um which is where i grew up in rochester new york okay yep. awesome now what kind of prompted uh you're getting out of the you know big triple a industry and uh venturing out to to do an indie project so um it's sort of an interesting story. I, I actually teach as well. So I'm, um, I teach at the University of Notre Dame. So I actually live in Indiana. That's why we're on Eastern time together here. Uh, Steve, my partner is in LA, so we work remotely. Um, and I've been teaching for seven years. And essentially what happened, uh, a few things happened that sort of led to my transition out of the studio um, system. I was working for 2K full-time remote, which is pretty unusual in itself, but I was working full-time remotely for 2K when I started teaching. So I was essentially overlapping my teaching and my studio work for a couple years. And then um, as a, um, a professor at the university, I have to do my own sort of independent creative work, research, quote-unquote research. Um, so that's sort of what prompted it initially was like I was teaching and I had to start doing my own creative work. I couldn't like be working on someone else's vision, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that. And then what happened was, is I reached out to a friend and it turned out that uh, this guy's name is Tom Hap. He did a game called Axiom Verge, an indie game. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. With that. Yep. Tom and I went to grad school together and Tom also worked with Steve uh, at a studio so I reached out to Tom, and I'm like, hey, do you want to work on a game together after Axiom Verge is over? And he basically was like, well, I'm going to be porting it for, like, a couple years, but why don't I introduce you to this guy named Steve Copeland who just left the studio system to start an indie thing? So Tom essentially in, uh, connected Steve and myself, and that's how we ended up working together. Um, and I think I was just – Steve and I were both sort of just ready to explore our own ideas you know, after working with on large teams for a long time, you know, working really hard on other people's sort of creative visions, we were just excited to do our own thing. Sure. I, I imagine there's pros and cons to, you know, kind of being a part of the big industry and doing your own thing. But um, what would you say is kind of the the best part of working on somebody else's vision and also working on your own? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, no, that's a great question. I mean, the best part of working on someone else's vision is you only have to do, like, one or two specialized things. Okay. And you don't have to worry about, like, a million things. 
So sure. <laughs> like there's a lot of great things about working on your own thing, like coming up with your own idea and working on it. Um, you know, if you can do it and you can do it well and you can finish it and it turns out well, it's obviously it's awesome to say, Hey, this is like the, the product of one or two people. You know, it's like we did everything, and that's what we're trying to do now. Sure. But it comes with just an immense amount of responsibility. And, like, essentially as an indie developer on a really small team, you just can't get away from it. It's like you are living it all the time. Uh, so I, I think the best part about working on someone else's vision is you don't have to worry too much. <laughs> like, you only have to worry about the specific things that you're doing. Uh, as an indie developer – now we have to both be responsible for a million things and make sure we're doing everything really, really well all the time uh, or else the game's going to sort of fall apart. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense. Is it hard to kind of um, get completely invested when it's, you know, it's somebody else's baby in a way? Um, you know, it, with uh, a new, I imagine it's, it's not hard to be just all in because this is, this is your child in a sense. Yeah. But when it's somebody else's vision, is it is it hard to kind of, I don't know, be behind it all the way, if that makes sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely makes sense. Um, so when, yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, I don't think when you're working at a studio, ideally you want to be working on a project that you care about. But that doesn't happen all the time. I mean, I think most of the time what's more common is is like, you enjoy working on the project. It may not be because you think like the idea is the greatest idea in the world, but you're still working on a game and you still get to do creative fun things that you're really good at. So there's a lot, it's, it's rewarding in that way. Right. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you have, you work on a game that you just really don't like. And at that point, usually that usually how that happens is, is you already working at the studio and like you're working on a project and it finishes up. And then you get put onto another project and, you know, you're an employee, they're paying you to do a job. So you just, you get put on the project and you just, you know, you either you do it or you leave, right. you know, to, for another studio. And that's, that's pretty commonly what happens with why people move around in the industry a lot and switch jobs and switch studios. Okay. Well, to, to spare the, the innocent or the guilty, I won't ask you what was <laughs> your least favorite project to work on. <laughs> Um, uh, I mean, I can add. I don't care. It was such a long time. <laughs> it's like, go for it then. I think the hardest, well, the hardest project I've worked on is the one I'm doing now uh, because sure. it, it just takes so long and it's so intense. Yeah. Um, but it's also been the best experience of my career and the most rewarding so far. But like the like the most stressful project that I worked on was the first Saints Row game. Mm. Um, and the reason being is that it was a launch title for the Xbox 360. So we were, the studio was growing really fast and management was growing really fast. So, um, and we didn't have all of our development tools ready. So all of these things were happening while we were trying to make the game. And like any developer that's potentially listening to the show knows that those are all sort of recipes for, I don't want to say disaster, but it makes it really hard yeah. to get your job done when there's all of these crazy things um, happening. So um, the people at the studio were great. Um, I think it was just all of those other stressors that were that that made the development tough. Sure. So I don't have any like uh, dirt. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all right. That's yeah. all right. Uh, well, so you are. Um, I would say you're out on your own, but you're not. You're uh, you're working as as part of a team. Uh, but you guys are making, uh, as I said, a new The Distant Light. So break down for us kind of what the, I guess, the elevator pitch of what that is. Yep. Um, yep. So a new The Distant Light uh, is, our, is our baby. And um, essentially it's a Metroidvania game. So uh, it's, a, it's a big sci-fi open world um, action adventure game. So um, it's got... Uh, it sort of takes place on this huge alien moon and there's uh, you sort of discover the story of why you're there and what your mission is. Um, lots of exploration. So you're, it has, it has that sort of classic Metroid structure and progression where you start off with a limited set of, of items and weapons and gear, and you sort of have to explore the world to find new items and gear that allow you to further explore the world and sort of unravel the story. Um, 
So what we're doing um, on top of that sort of classic design is we have sort of a really different, interesting story that's being told visually. Um, so we don't have any dialogue or text in the game. It's sort of a purely audiovisual experience, and it has a sort of very weird surrealist tone to it. Um, so that's one thing. And then on the gameplay front, we have some really awesome, powerful vehicles that the player can pilot. So like uh, he, like mechs and rocket ships, flying saucers and dune buggies. Um, that's something we really wanted to do to sort of keep it's going to be a pretty big game, so just to try and keep the gameplay fresh and exciting, you're sort of constantly finding new ways to explore the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, the mystery of what's going on with the game has a lot to do with what the story is, but can you kind of break down uh, as much of the backstory as you can without, obviously, spoiling anything, yeah. but kind of what's what's going on? You're on an alien moon. Why is, yeah. why is that? Well... I don't know if you can say why is that, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I definitely don't want to spoil anything. Uh, but like, right. So what I can do is sort of tell you like how the game opens. Okay. Um, it, so there's a sort of a brief cinematic that plays at the beginning of the game that helps to set up the story and set up the tone of the game. Um, but essentially, like the game starts and you are uh, sort of you're set against this sort of burning city in the background and everything's sort of burnt out and there's a spaceship on earth on a sort of makeshift launch pad and we and the ship takes off and we go inside the ship and we see that there's this little baby that's been loaded up onto the ship and the the spaceship travels 20 light light years through space to this alien moon and along the way the baby grows up into a 20 year old um, and we see that when the ship sort of takes off from Earth, like a third of the Earth has been sort of blown off on the bottom. So something something terrible has happened at home, and you've been sent out as the player. You're that child, and you've been sent out into space. So you land on this alien moon and sort of wake up to see that the sleep pod, there's two sleep pods on the ship, and one of them is open, and there's a sign on the side of it that says, Find Me. So that's sort of the initial instigator for the story is like you're here someone's missing maybe i need to go out and find them and also figure out what what the heck i'm doing here and that's essentially the setup for the story okay sounds like a uh, kind of dark and uh, i don't want to say twisted but just a, a <laughs> dark and um i don't know sci-fi version of superman but where superman comes from earth instead of Krypton. <laughs> yeah it's really funny um i never even thought of that until we put our game like we were on kickstarter and a couple of people were like this is like reverse superman and I, I was like oh yeah actually there are some similarities there yeah so so essentially you discover all sorts of things about the backstory and why you're there as you explore the world okay Cool. So what uh, you mentioned that you know it's very inspired, kind of like the Metroidvania style of gameplay. Uh, what's your, I guess, core gameplay loop? What are you going to be doing most of the time? Yeah. So essentially, what you're doing is um, the game is is essentially like an open world game. So it's not it's nonlinear, right? So you're not going from left to right the whole time. You're sort of going in all directions. Um, so I guess I guess a pretty common loop would be. Um, you know, right at the beginning of the game, you start off inside the ship that you've traveled on, and the, actually the inside of that ship is a playable zone, So, which is pretty cool. So the rooms inside the ship, some of them are online, some of them are offline, and they each are functional. So you actually start the game by exploring, by exploring the inside of your own ship to see what's inside and what's working and what it actually does. Um, and eventually you leave the ship and you end up on the landscape of this alien moon, and you can go in any direction. So the loop would be you explore, um, you, you maybe come up to a section that looks like you should be able to get to, like maybe you need to jump higher than you can actually go, right? And it's clear that you need to go that way in the world, but you don't have the right gear to do it. So you continue to explore and you fight creatures and you um, collect items until you find that essential piece of gear that allows you to progress through the world. So you kind of remember back, like, oh, I remember that place I needed to jump really high. I just got this the double jump gear. Now I can go back that way and explore um, uh, along that path and see what's there. Um, and as you explore, 
as far as the storytelling, what we're doing is the story is told all in game and it's all in world. So you sort of pass through, you explore and you pass through these very strange, surreal spaces uh, that are very weird. Um, but they essentially, if you're paying attention, will, as you play through the whole game, will tell you all about what happened on Earth and why you're there. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned that there's not any uh, dialogue or like big text boxes or anything. Everything's told visually. Yeah. Uh, what are what are some of the challenges of trying to tell a story that is <laughs> purely visual yeah. and not uh, not reading or or listening yeah. to somebody talk? Well, that was a goal of ours right from the very beginning because I don't like I don't like reading when I'm playing video games. Mm-hmm. Like if I want to read, I just read a book. <laughs> because those people really know how to write. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it sounds kind of harsh, but like if I want a really no, good story and I want to yeah. read it, the book is the best way to do it. So there's definitely we, something to that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like reading in a game, like when you have a lot of text, it t- to to us, it just sort of is like it sort of breaks the flow of the game. Like you're in that moment, you're in the gameplay, and then it just sort of breaks you away from that. So. Well, uh, I, I think that's why audio diaries have become so popular is that way you're not having to, you know, just read something. But then you introduce this new mechanic of like, okay, somebody was sitting down recording this, you know, as they died or as something happened and somehow their audio diary is now scattered across the map that I'm picking <laughs> up. Like, how does that make yeah, sense? It's a little game. Uh, <laughs> you, have to, you, have to, you have to sort of give in a little, give a little bit. Right. Um, right. But uh, anyway. But yeah, no, um, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, so the challenges, I mean, there's there's a reason why I think a lot of developers use text because it's just a lot easier to communicate information that way. It's just immediate. You know, like you want to say something to the player, you just write it out and they, they read it. Sure. When you're doing it visually, it's really challenging. It's been a huge challenge, but it's. I think we di- I think we're gonna do it, <laughs> and I think it's gonna be really interesting. Um, so the challenges are like, how do you tell the player? How do you communicate specific things to the player using visual like iconography and using like objects and color and light and like sort of principles of of art. To, to tell not not only to tell tell something vague to the player but to actually tell them something specific um, so and like figuring out especially like because our game is nonlinear we need to make sure that the player passes through these story moments in the correct order which mm-hmm. right so it's not only like what you know visually what we're t- trying to tell them in those moments but it's also in a nonlinear game, making sure they pass through these areas in a linear fashion. So it's the sequencing of them, and it's also what's happening visually and with music um, that try to get some sort of emotional connection to the player. Very cool. I don't know. I Hopefully, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how people react. Uh, sure. Absolutely. Now, uh, you guys are kind of making the game in concert with the music being made for it. Uh, I've talked to plenty of people where, you know, music is made towards the end, and it's just kind of, you know, it's like, here's the samples of what we want, and they make music for it, and it gets put into it. And I don't know, I feel like having music this early on, um, how, how is the music influencing the game, and how is the game influencing the music? Yeah, it is unusual. It is unusual to involve a composer early, but the music is uh, the music in our game is a really important part of that storytelling. So we're actually uh, Will Roger is writing music uh, that has themes, sort of themes that are attached to characters and situations and places, and those themes recur throughout the game in a way that sort of subconsciously creates meaning, mm-hmm. right? So that's a big part of telling a visual... A visual storytelling, sort of funny, but the music and the sound helps the visuals to, to work. Um, so we knew we knew early on that the music was going to be a, real, a very important part of our game, and it wasn't something that we wanted to just shoehorn in at the end and sort of just have music sort of plastered all throughout the game, mm-hmm. right? Um, so... We essentially just talked, I just reached out to a bunch of composers working in games that I really, really liked a lot. And um, we just, uh, Will and I just hit it off as far as 
personalities and the types of music that we like to listen to. And, and obviously he's insanely talented. So like I knew he would do a great job on the game because it's really sort of like intellectual music that he's writing. Um, like it has a lot of meaning and the orchestrations are very complex and beautiful and stuff. So, so it was just, essentially we just needed him to be like a slow burn on our project. Uh, but I mean, he's, he, by the time we're, we ship our game, he's, he'll have probably worked on like five or six AAA games, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny, uh, to think, to think that, but, um, so he sort of weaves his way in and out of our project, you know, as he's working on other contracts. So. Has there been any point in time where you've, uh, you know, asked for something in particular, you got something else, and that kind of came back and affected, um, you know, what, where you were wanting to put that music, um, I, I yeah. guess, you know, mood or uh, story beats or anything like that. Is there anything that's like the music has kind of changed yeah. what you were originally wanting to go, do going, oh, wow, this is way different, but this is mm-hmm. awesome. Let's go that direction. Sure. Yeah. And I didn't actually answer your other question about how sort of the art and the game influences the music and vice versa. But I think sort of those two questions are similar. Um, Yeah, it happens all the time on our game. So I don't just sort of randomly go to Will and say, hey, write a piece of music that sounds like sci-fi, you know, like we had a lot of essentially like art and music direction discussions early in the project. And I sent him all sorts of reference music. Um, that I picked out that I thought like tonally was what like emotionally tonally what I was shooting for and what I thought would work Mm -hmm. in the game. Um, And that gave him some grounding as far as him understanding what direction to move in. Um, And it wasn't like, here's this piece of music, you know, copy it exactly so we can just put it in our game. So I essentially gave Will sort of a rule book and then gave him all sorts of creative freedom to write whatever he wanted. Um, which, he's a great composer. Like, why would... I'm not going to tell him exactly what to do. He's he's the master, you know? Like, he does those things great. And I want to make sure I'm giving him the freedom to, to do that. So, I would say, like, when we talk to each other and I say, hey... So, so essentially, our workflow is, to answer your question, is, is um, I will send him some sort of visual reference... So this could be like, I started building a zone in the game and I've got some of the art and level design and lighting and stuff. And I'll record video footage of that, even if it's early stuff. And I'll send it to him and say, this is generally like the tone of what we're shooting for, for this part of the game. And then he, he'll write, he'll go off and write essentially what he called like a concept piece of music of his ideas and what he thinks tonally would work. And then he would send it back to me and we'd just sort of go back and forth and um, I'd say this sounds great. This is awesome. Can you try something a little different here? And I mean, usually on his first or second attempt, it's like mind blowingly <laughs> awesome. So I never have to be like, Oh, this is totally off. Uh, like he usually sends music back to Steve and, and me and we're just like, wow, this sounds amazing. And it elevates the game so much. So we're, we're always like, I like to, what I like to say is like Will and myself and Steve, we're all sort of trying to inspire each other with what we're doing and help, help each other to sort of generate new creative ideas. Very cool. Um, now you mentioned that there are different themes or the, the different themes for the different areas, different characters, or is it just kind of everything it possibly has its own theme and just blending it all together? How, how does that work? Yeah. So the way that the, um, sort of the way the music is structured is that I don't want to say too much because it might give away this, what we're doing with the story, but essentially like each faction in the game has its own musical identity. So the player sort of has um, the, there's sort of a theme that's attached to earth and to home. There's a theme that's attached to, and then there's a theme that's attached to each of the other two important factions in the game. Um, so they're just, we, we try to use them intelligently throughout the game to, to tell our story. Yeah. And they each have their own, like very distinct sound. Thanks. Well, we'll shift gears from that. So you mentioned that the game is, is open world and that it's, it's Metroidvania, uh, and that there are vehicles and I don't, I don't know about anybody else, but when I think of Metroidvania, I usually think of, you know, corridors and stuff like that. And 
not necessarily <laughs> large open spaces with giant mechs and whatnot. Um, how right. big are these spaces, and how do vehicles work in a you know two D game like that? Right. Yeah, I mean that's when we started making our game. It's like, well, we don't want to just do what everybody else has done. That there's what's the point? Like this is our chance to do something in some way that's unique. So we thought about like what are all the core sort of design elements of a Metroid style game, and like ninety five percent of the time or whatever, you're on foot, right? You're running around, you're jumping, but essentially you're on foot mm-hmm. in those games all the time. So we thought, well, I love games with mechs. I don't know. I just think mechs are awesome because you feel super overpowered and, uh, and like uh, what's the the old game, um, Master Blaster? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know if you ever played that for Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, you essentially play as a little car and you're like hopping around and stuff. And I always thought that was super cool. So Steve and I sort of identified just like vehicles that we've played in game, in other games that we thought could work within the design structure of our, of, of our game of that Metroidvania style. So essentially like, so you ask like, you know, you, you typically think of like really tight corridors that you're running down, right? Mm-hmm. Like all sort of on right angles all the time, right. you're jumping, you're um, so one thing that we wanted to do with our game is like, we don't actually have a lot of right angles in our game. Like the terrain, um, if you see, if you've watched our trailer, um, some of the videos online, the terrain is like very organic in our game. So, um, because we wanted it to feel sort of natural and, and alien and weird. So we can do whatever we want. Like, so some of the areas of, of our game are sort of tight, you know, like, uh, like corridors and small rooms. Um, but then to sort of keep the gameplay feeling fresh and fun, those areas will open up into larger spaces where new types of combat encounters can be had and new types of enemies um, are encountered that, that keep it sort of fresh. So, um, like, for example, we have this mech that, like, fills the entire screen, so it's, like, 20 times taller than the player. And if you try to go, like, in, in one of the areas in the game, there's, like, soldier, enemy soldiers all over the place, and usually one of those soldiers will kill you really fast. So in order to survive and get through that section, you need to find and get into that huge mech and just, like, fire through those dudes with your massive laser beam. Cool. So it sort of stems from a design standpoint it's like we want the player to feel super powerful we want them to sort of feel the pain like they can't get through that section mm-hmm. and then we want them to reward them by finding that vehicle and then when they get in the vehicle they feel like super powered when they realize what it can do mm-hmm. so that's sort of one example very cool um you mentioned some of the the combat encounters that you'll be getting into um and you know obviously you'll be getting new gadgets and uh, i assume weapons uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those gadgets and weapons and how they play into combat sure yeah so you um you start the game uh in like i said inside of your ship and you sort of explore the inside of the ship and make your way down to uh what we call the workbench so that's where you pick up your first weapon which is sort of like this medium range laser machine gun um uh no ammo so it has sort of unlimited ammo and that part that particular part of the ship is where you can come back with your weapons and like use your currency to upgrade them. So each weapon has an upgrade path. Um, But yeah, so we have, you know, we have short range weapons like a shotgun that does a lot of damage and has a wide spread, but has short range. Um, We have essentially it's an alien weapon that you find um, called the MCX, which is like a sniper, um, a long range sniper laser. And you can sort of bounce the projectile off of the terrain, off of the surfaces um, we have like a sticky bomb, so you you can throw those and they stick to enemies and stick to walls and surfaces and do a lot of damage when they blow up. Um, I'm trying to think if I think those are the only weapons we've actually showed, but we have some other really cool ones. Um, one of them is called the uh, uh, it's like a it's like a grenade launcher pistol that fires like a physics object around, so it sort of bounces around the world and it. It uh, causes like electricity to shock enemies, and they freeze in place, and then you can attack them. So yeah, so um, 
we've got quite a few weapons in the game, and you sort of need to find them in order to survive and make your way through the world. Now, as far as surviving, um, in the on the Kickstarter page, it mentions that there's different like environmental effects and whatnot, day-night cycle. Does that affect your ability to survive? Or when you say survive, do you mean just not be killed yeah. by enemies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd say it's both, yeah. Um, there's there's just, like, trying not to die by taking damage from enemies. Um, but, yeah, uh, in, so, the, so the game takes place above and below ground. So when you go above ground, there's this cycle where there's this, like, gigantic sun that goes through the sky, and at, at sort of the peak times of day, the sun gets humongous, and if you're above ground and you're not, like, shielded, you essentially take you take the environmental, like, heat damage and you sort of start smoking. <laughs> uh, so you can actually, you can upgrade your spacesuit in the game, too, so you can find sort of modules that help keep you cool so you can survive on the surface for longer. Um, yeah, so some of that environmental stuff does actually impact gameplay, okay. yeah. What, what other uh, environmental effects are there besides a really hot sun? <laughs> Uh, that's pretty much it right now. It's, yeah, the trick is, is like all that stuff can get like out of control really fast as far as <laughs> like, if you start adding too much stuff that you can, it's hard for us to implement it all, honestly. And then the player gets, you have to like clearly communicate to the player why all of a sudden you're taking damage. Right. So we sort of stuck to that one core system, um, as far as the sun to that, that, that the player can understand. Makes sense. So can you kind of plan accordingly and say try to go out into a particular area at night instead of during the day um, and try to circumvent those systems? Or is it more geared towards you need to get this upgrade to get to this outdoor area? It's, yeah, it's definitely both. Okay, cool. It's definitely both. Like you could you could be running along the surface and the sun is coming up and you know that you're going to start taking damage and you see this area that's a little too far away, right? Mm-hmm. You, you want to go over there, but you know that if you do, you're probably going to die. So you can go underground and explore the another part of the zone that's underground. You won't take damage, and then if you come back up and it's nighttime, you can head back over to that spot, that area. Very cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, any other uh, particular like gadgets or anything that you get that are, you know, just neat and you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. So there's all those all those weapons. We also have all of these. Uh, um, pieces of gear that allow you to move around the world in fun ways. So we have um, you don't you start the game with basically you're just on foot. You don't have anything crazy um, um, as far as mobility. But you can we you get um, like a slide upgrade that allows you to slide underneath like rocks that are hanging really low. Um, we have uh, wall climbing gloves, which are really fun. So when you get that, you can actually climb pretty much all of the terrain in the game. So other, you know, areas that are really high up that you can see you can't get to, you can just jump and cling to the wall and just climb up. Uh, we have uh, swimming gear. So we have pretty large sections of the game that are completely underwater. So we have, you can swim underwater. We have a jetpack that works above and below water. So you can jetpack underwater and above water. Um, gravity boots uh, and just some other sort of fun um, physics-based environmental interactions like swings and stuff like that that you can sort of you can sort of get on a swing and prime it you know like you're your kid like pumping back and forth <laughs> so you can combine all of these systems and uh, together to, to feel like you you have sort of mastery of your the, the player and the way you can move through the world now the world itself you mentioned uh, doesn't have a whole lot of right angles which gives it even just that by itself gives it kind of a unique look but the art style also is just very i don't know it feels different than a lot of things that i've seen you're yeah. you're the artist can you talk a little bit about kind of your inspiration <laughs> behind that and just you know i guess the function yeah. of that as well sure yeah i am the guy i'm the guy doing the art it's <laughs> a lot of art it's a lot of art that has to be done uh that's why these games take so long to make right one of the reasons um yeah i mean as the creative person, visual person on the project, that was sort of one of my main goals right from the very, very beginning is like, can we actually make something that truly looks different and unique? Sometimes I just feel, 
I think it's from working in studios for so long. You work on a lot of sequels, mm-hmm. and you just look at all the sort of AAA games, and I mean, how often do you see something that truly looks different and unique? So for me, sort of the challenge to ourselves that we put forth was like, well, can we do something that in some way, maybe visually or with gameplay, looks looks different? So that was sort of the, the driving motivator for me is to just, just have fun and create something that looks w- sort of wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's essentially just my drawing. This is how I draw. Okay. It's just my own personal style, I guess you could say. Um, so there's really like the only person that can say no is Steve and he doesn't, he doesn't like keep me on a short leash or anything. <laughs> uh, Cause he likes the look of it too. Um, and that's the beauty of making an indie game is that, if you have a unique vision for something, you can just do it if you believe in it, if you believe it's going to work. Yeah. Um, so that's just what visually kind of what I'm interested in. Um, I love um, surrealist art so and concept art, sort of like concept art for film and games. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make something that sort of scratches those itches. Like uh, it feels kind of rough. I don't, I don't know. Like, it's it, some some of the art doesn't feel completely polished or like photorealistic in our game, and that's intentional. We want it to feel sort of alien and sort of, sort of looks weird. Sure. Um, so I, yeah, so I'm I'm a fan of surrealist art, um, and that sort of visually has inspired me. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I I think that's all the questions I have uh, about the game proper. Uh, with the Darkcast interview series, we like to finish things off by asking you some more personal questions uh, that can be a lot more uh, agonizing than you would think that they are. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I've kind of remixed them from what we, we used to do. And uh, my first question for you, Jeff, is who is your favorite video game character? <laughs> uh, it's going to be hero, sidekick, villain, anybody. Who is your all-time yeah. favorite video game character? So my all, so I have all of these really obvious answers. So I'm going to use one that's ridiculous and Go for it. No, but nobody's going to remember. But my favorite video game character is Billy from Bayou Billy. Okay, yeah. I, See, you don't even know who that. I don't. I don't. I was like, I'm ready for this. I'm going to know who he's talking. No, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> so I, I wanted to, I, that was intentional. So you got to go back. There's this really <laughs> terrible Nintendo game that was made in the late '80s called Bayou Billy. Uh, where you're essentially like, you're just like this this dude with a hat going through the bayou of Louisiana, just punching people. So, <laughs> I love go it. Go back and find gameplay videos, and uh, yep, Bayou Billy. That's fantastic. Uh, okay, switching gears. If there was a video game that you could play again for the first time, uh, so your opinions of it wouldn't be marred by like poorly aged gameplay or anything like that, but if you could go back and, and re-experience a game for the first time, what would it be? Well, this is sort of nostalgia, but I would I would say Zelda 2. Mm-hmm. I loved Zelda 2, the side-scrolling Zelda game. Yeah. And what what about take, that one? Yeah, I don't... I think it was just like this primitive like reaction. You know, we when I was a kid, we played Zelda, and it was always just top-down. Mm-hmm. Right. There were so few games that were coming out back then. You know, you get like one game a year for Christmas and you'd have to make it last for like 11 months. Right. So we play Zelda and it's all top down. And then Zelda 2 comes out and it's like, holy crap, you can play games looking at them from this, like Zelda from the side. How is this possible? <laughs> so I just remember like this whole new world opening up as far as like just the way you move the character around and the way it's presented. Mm-hmm. So I have very fond memories of that game. So I would say Zelda 2. Okay. I like it. I'm picking answers that no one will ever. That's great. <laughs> it gets kind of boring hearing the same ones over and over again. <laughs> so I, I am digging what you are, are doing right okay, now. Okay, all right. Um, so to switch things up again, uh, I should probably stop saying that for every question, but if you could just wipe a game from your memory, <laughs> what would it be? Oh, God. Uh, wipe a game from my memory. Yeah, whether it was just... A, a bad game or yeah. just a, a bad experience or maybe just you played it at a bad time in your life and you, know, <laughs> you can just wipe that whole like an association section. yeah uh, <laughs> man so I, this is this is a tough one I don't have a good answer I'm gonna say the first Uncharted Ooh. not because it's a bad game but 
I bought an original fat PS3 and Uncharted, this is in 2007, Uncharted locked up and froze and destroyed my PlayStation. (laughs) I got the infamous yellow light of death. And it happened in a specific part in Uncharted, so of course I went online, and other people, Uncharted was destroying their PlayStations at the same spot. I don't even remember hearing about this. Yeah. That's nuts. You know, and that thing cost like $700 when it came out, right? Something like Yeah. I think it was, I think it was 600 I think it was yeah, 500 Yeah, it, it was crazy. Ooh. So anyway, that's... that's Okay. But I do love Uncharted. But. That's... <laughs> yeah, I had... Um... I, I got one of the slim PS3s and I picked up a game called Folklore. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it was it was one of the few games where you could like go in and install the game from the menu. It was before right. uh you know, current Jan of everything installing. Uh but one of the few PlayStation games uninstalled and it got locked up while it was installing. Oh, man. I had to restart the PlayStation and when it comes back up it does its little check this thing and then restarts again and when it came back up it had completely formatted the hard drive. Oh god. <laughs> and so I just I I bought the game used. I just took it back to GameStop and I was like, "Here, take this. I don't want it." Oh man. That's a good one. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of those issues have sort of ironed themselves out over the past 10 years. Yeah. But, man, early on with, like, digital downloads and, stuff, and like, firmware and all that stuff, it was, a, it was oh, sort of yeah. a mess. It was indeed. Yeah. Um, all right, so what is a good uh, trend that you see in video games that maybe it's it's prolific, maybe it's it's hidden in the shadows, but what is what is something in video games that you feel like you should see more often? Well... That's a tough one because I, I feel like I'm, I'm an old, crusty game developer fart, you know? Uh, so. <laughs> well, the, the reverse of the question is going to be what's a trope that you wish would either be lessened or just go away. Right. So if you want to answer that first, no, no, that's I guess. Okay. I, I mean, I would say, like, I'm just encouraged by other independent indie game developers who are just going for it. As, as far as, like, the type of games they're making and doing interesting things with stories and interesting things visually that... You'd never, ever be able to do if you were financed by a big publisher or something. So I think that's sure. – I love being a part of that movement, right, being part of that independent developer movement. So I think that's amazing that, that people are indie, – small indie teams are, like, pushing the creative boundaries. Yeah. Even amidst the challenges, many challenges, I hope that people continue to do that. Um, things that I wish would go would, – would just outright stop – uh, microtransactions. <laughs> I I have kids now. My oldest is playing Fortnite, and he's like, "Oh, Dad, I just want to spend twenty dollars to get this new skin." And I'm like, "That is the, literally the worst use of your money <laughs> in life." Like, I'm trying to be a good dad. It's like go buy twenty dollars worth of candy. That will be better than yes. <laughs> go buy a huge block of cheddar cheese and just not not on that. <laughs> Oh, and it's crazy with people like growing up with microtransactions and they don't find that to be insane because just like 10 years ago, everybody collectively flipped their lids when you had to buy horse armor for Oblivion. Yeah, I remember that. Like everyone lost their minds and now, you know, I think... Now the horse comes like without skin. You have to like buy buy skin for your horse and and, like eyeballs and stuff. You buy the skeleton and the muscular system and the internal organs, the, the fur. You have to buy it all separately. Uh, and they, and they give you the armor for, as a thank you for <laughs> being a loyal customer. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's uh. – So I right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally agree on that one. Microtransactions are awful. Yep. Um, okay. So if you could try any profession, uh, no – holds barred like no repercussions <laughs> just give anything a shot uh, what would it be i would uh let's see no holds barred i was gonna say i'm not even gonna say it because in case my kids are listening <laughs> that would be bad <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna filter myself on that one i'm imagining my wife standing next to me looking at me saying don't say it don't say it um uh <laughs> I, I'm gonna say like an astronaut because I wanna I wanna be the first person to step on Mars. Okay. 
but I would never actually do that because it's way too scary. <laughs> well, sure. That's, this is Fantasyland, so you get to do that. Uh, is there a giant mech uh, in your version of Stepping on Mars? Are you saving the Earth in that? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> there's no epic storyline. I'm, just, like, no... <laughs> I'm just, trying to, just trying to like get off the ship without falling and breaking my mask open like uh, Total Recall at the beginning of Total Recall. <laughs> my eyes popping out of my head. Uh, that's a great movie. This is one of the greatest um... movies ever. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay, so final question. Yeah. Uh, at the end of your life, uh, you find out that heaven is real. You get there, but... Heaven is actually the Mushroom Kingdom from Mario. What's the first thing you do? <laughs> oh my god. What's the first thing I do? Um, I just endlessly bounce up and down on the top of the head of uh, Goomba. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's the only... That's, that's pretty lame, but that's that's, what I, that's just what I'm going to do. If there's no time, right, I'll just keep doing that over and over. Sure, yeah. I mean, who knows what the rules are in the Mushroom Kingdom. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's time. I mean, Mario's been the same age this whole time, yeah. so I, I assume. I don't think there's any time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that does it uh, for my questions, Jeff. Thank you so much uh, for sitting down and talking with me about A New The Distant Light if you could send us out by letting our listeners know where they can go to find out more information about the game. Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me. That was, that was a lot of fun. Um, yep. So as far as places to learn more about us, our website is anewthegame.com. So A-N-E-W thegame.com. And then on Facebook and Twitter, we are at anewthegame. That's it. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, good luck as you guys continue with development and get the game out there in people's hands. Awesome. Thanks, Jonathan. 